Hello and welcome to Furloughed, Defining Moments Worth Talking About. I'm Leonard Cochran, your host. And of course, as always, we have Steve Otterstrom with us. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And how are you doing, Leonard? I never ask you. I always just, you know, answer and then take the conversation off, but I never find out how you're doing. <laughs> I'm doing so good. let's let you talk first. How are you? <laughs> doing good. Still busy painting the inside of my house and keeping myself occupied. <laughs> and so not not a lot to really report on. And what I want to do, Steve, is just jump right into our guest today. Uh, so we are actually recording this for everyone listening. We're recording this on June the 1st, and you're going to be hearing it probably on June the 15th or sometime after that. But I did see an article that I thought was pertinent to what we've been talking about, some of the things recently on our furloughed podcast, and it's by Dr. Sarah McKay. So let me just tell you a bit about her, and then we'll talk about the article with her. Uh, so Sarah McKay is a neuroscientist who received her PhD from Oxford, and she bridges the gap between the lab of neuroscience and everyday life, and that's what makes her so great. And she's authored a book called The Woman's Brain Book. It's the neuroscience of health, hormones, and happiness. I'm sure I need to read that, but I have not yet. <laughs> and also Sarah and how I met her is she is the director at the Neuroscience Academy. And it offers professional training for folks that are interested in neuroscience and brain health. And it's a global community of folks that join that from all walks of life in varying areas and really a neat program. And Sarah's been published extensively in different magazines and newspapers, such as the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, Sydney Morning Herald. And so if you can't guess from the Sydney Morning Herald, she hails from Sydney. Uh, and and says on her site that her and her husband are raising two surfer dudes and a cocker spaniel. So, Sarah, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, all right. Well, you wrote an article that was posted on your site called The Uncertain Brain, A Guide to Facing the Fear of the Unknown. And mm -hmm. you really had some great things in there. And so if you would just kind of introduce this article to us a little bit, uh, and then certainly you had seven areas there that I know we want to focus on that, but kind, kind of unpack and talk about some of the uncertainty, especially during this time of COVID and everything that we're going through, if you would, please. Yeah, ab absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's a, it's a pleasure to chat. And um, I'll just I'll just follow up on one point of your introduction there. Um, I'm a New Zealander, so I, I was born and grew up in New Zealand, but I live in Sydney, Australia. So I'm kind there of... There you go. Got dual citizenship, let's say. <laughs> All right. Kiwi first, Kiwi first and foremost. Just in case anyone's listening to my accent, they they will be able to tell. Um, yeah, well, thanks. It's it's interesting how this article came about because there was a a real sort of personal reflection on this. So, I mean, I don't think there's anyone on the planet at the moment that is unfamiliar with, as we keep calling it, these unprecedented, uncertain times, and certainly when I wrote the article, which was sort of late March, early April, mm -hmm. it, we, we were just all kind of coming to grips with with what was happening here in Australia and in New Zealand, at least, we'd been in um, a degree of lockdown for a couple of weeks at that point. Um, I, um, amongst lots of the different things that I'm involved in, 
um, have been fortunate enough to be part of a woman in STEM leadership training program, which um, is called Homeward Bound. Um, it's really set up partly around um, and kind of training women up to take on more leadership roles with a bit of a focus on climate change and climate justice. So the tagline of Homeward Bound is Mother Nature Needs Her Daughters. Um, and each uh, sort of year, there's 75 women from around the world who are in STEM professions training up. And the, the ultimate, or the kind of the pinnacle of the training is that we end up taking a voyage to Antarctica mm. um, as, as kind of, the, I suppose, the culmination of our training. We spend um, three weeks on, on, on board a boat on a, on a voyage to Antarctica, leaving from Ushuaia in Argentina. And that was originally meant to be taking place in November this year, November 2020. Um, and obviously with the state of the world, certainly March, April, and still now is definitely the case in June, it's pretty uncertain as to whether or not that voyage will take place. It's highly likely that we will not be going in 2020. And I think, right. especially as scientists, very few of us are very willing to want to go on board a ship at, at, this, at this point in time in the pandemic when yeah. everything is so uncertain. And yeah, it's been interesting. Well. <laughs> yeah, it's been very interesting um, to be part of this group of women, not obviously for all of the things that we've been learning and the leadership training, the connections we've, we've made, but certainly all of us are deeply invested personally, professionally and financially in, in Homeward Bound. Mm -hmm. And kind of come March, April, there are a lot of discussions and various Zoom conversations with the, um, the governing body about whether or not this trip to Antarctica would be taking place and where we were at. And, of course, it was, a, it was just incredibly uncertain, emotionally fragile. There was a lot of doubt. There was a lot of indecision. And the leadership team at that point in time, and there's still a little bit of uncertainty, they could not promise whether or not we'd be on board that boat in November. And in late March, everything was very, very chaotic. And it was interesting for me to watch the Zoom calls play out because I personally have a reasonably high tolerance or high threshold for taking risk. I'm, I'm, I've, I've done a lot of um, things in my life. I've lived overseas. I've travelled a lot. Um, you know, my, my my tolerance for risk is reasonably high, and I'm also pretty good with uncertainty, with not kind of knowing what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And what fascinated me during these calls about this Antarctica decision was the varying degrees of tolerance that people have to uncertainty. Now, some people were kind of okay that the leadership team couldn't tell us whether or not we were going, but there were a lot of people who were really not okay with that doubt and with mm. that indecision. And what I saw was those who were really not coping well emotionally with that. They were continually asking, asking, asking for reassurance. They kept wanting more detailed information and they were expressing a, a wide range of emotions. They were angry, they were frustrated, they were disappointed mm. and no one really knew what was going on. And right. it was very interesting for me to reflect on this, what we would call tolerance to uncertainty. Now, I have to say the main reason that I was able to, I suppose, sit back a little bit from the decision-making was, I, I, as I say, I do a lot of um, work within translating neuroscience. And last year I was doing some work with, if you can believe, back in 2019 when things were reasonably stable, I was doing some work with the real estate industry. 
And we were doing some work then on why do people find the process of buying, selling, buying and selling houses so incredibly stressful? And if Uh, you or any of your listeners have ever bought or sold a house, and usually you do the two simultaneously, it's an incredibly (laughs) stressful time. And a large part of the stress comes about from the uncertainty of the process, not knowing whether you'll get Mm. the price you want, whether you will find your dream home. You know, there's, there's, there's so many decisions that are out of your hands. So I knew a little bit about the psychology and what happens in our brains during uncertainty. And then when I was sitting in on these Zoom calls um, about this Antarctica decision, I realised right now we were in almost this kind of global boot camp, this global kind of tolerance to uncertainty boot camp. The entire planet Mm. was suddenly in this position of no one knows what's happening next. And if we look to the psychology of what makes people feel stressed and anxious, typically what underlies a lot of our stresses, a lot of our anxieties are these um, as, as uncertainty, is fear of the unknown. Some people even said it's perhaps the fundamental fear that unlies all of our human anxieties and worries. And in 2020, here we are, everything, has, everything has changed. And yeah. it's not just that you know our plans and our goals and things that we had planned for the second half of 2020 have um, you know, changed, they've, they've vanished, they've disappeared, they've evaporated. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the entire planet is in this state of not knowing, having to wait to find out. Um, and everyone has questions that no one has the answer to. And, and that, I think, kind of underlies this incredible degree of stress and anxiety that, that the entire planet is facing. And that was really what was the, 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 the seed for writing, writing this article because I wanted to share what I saw as underlying people's stress and knowing a bit about psychology and neuroscience, there's pretty predictable ways people respond, and there's some really well-established ways that we can we can cope with with this with this fear of the unknown. And and before we jump into some of the responses and some of that, I, I'm curious because I I'm familiar a little tiny tiny bit with resilience, and I know. Mm-hmm. There is a spectrum of resilience, and I, when I hear the word tolerance to risk and uncertainty, as you're talking about, I kind of think of resilience as well. Mm. So, is is from your knowledge is is that a spectrum that is genetically something in our DNA, or is it based mm. on life experiences? Or do you do you yeah. have an answer for I, that? I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> always put tolerance to uncertainty and resilience necessarily together. Mm. Mm-hmm. Although by and large, I suppose that we see people who are a lot more resilient to whatever life throws at them are probably going to be more tolerant to uncertainty. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But I suppose for both, for both being resilient to, you know, you could be, you could be physiologically resilient, you could be highly resist, resistant and resilient to stress, you can be mm-hmm. reasonably resilient to developing mental health um, issues based on, in part by your biology, based in part by your life experiences. Um, we can also practice some skills of resilience. And right. similarly, we can practice some skills um, to intolerance to uncertainty, although I would see tolerance to uncertainty is more of a niche part of, of resilience, which is, which is larger. And I suppose to answer your original question, there is evidence that one of the factors which makes people more resilient overall, in particular, this has been explored very well within the mental health space. People 
there are some people who do have a particular biological or genetic predisposition to be more resilient than others. Mm. That's not the only risk factor or, or sort of strength in there, but, but there does appear to be a genetic component within there. Right. Well, and the good news, like you say, with tolerance is we, it is something we can exercise and grow and develop. So that's, that's the good part. Oh, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, and I mean, it's such a common situation. So we've all sort of faced the fear of the unknown, whether, you know, you've, um, you know, let's look at 2020, you know, we don't know when, if, how we're going to get a vaccine. Um, I grew up in New Zealand. My husband grew up in Ireland. We're in Australia. We don't know when we're going to be able to fly to visit our parents again, our families, when a border's going to open. Um, I suppose when I wrote this article, the question on everyone's top of everyone's mind was that the curves starting to flatten. We've been incredibly fortunate due to a lot of policy and perhaps also a little bit of luck in Australia and New Zealand. The curves have flattened um, and you know, schools have reopened here. Um, mm-hmm. my, my boys, this is their second week back to full-time face-to-face teaching. So we've been incredibly lucky. We've, we've kind of started to implement our exit strategy, but I suppose now like we're coming into winter here. Is there going to be a second wave? What does happen if borders open? Are we, are we, is my husband ever going to be able to travel back to Ireland and see his family within the next two, three, four years? Will we have to wait for a vaccine? Will I get to Antarctica? So I suppose at different points in this process, right. no matter where you are in the world, and different countries are facing different, um, I suppose there are different points in the curve, so to speak. Um, there's, there's different questions to be asked. So we're all suddenly becoming very familiar with this, having to wait to find out. Yeah. Previously, maybe, you know, you'd set a really important exam, you were waiting for your results or you've met some some new you know lover you've you know you've hooked up with someone and you're waiting for them to return your your text you know you're agonizing waiting for the results of a medical diagnosis and these are all pretty common situations that we've all found ourselves in in the past and I suppose the thing that ties all of that together is that incredible emotional discomfort we feel we do not like the negative emotions that come alongside not knowing and there's some reasons for that from, from the perspective of neurobiology, um, and that is that our, our human brains act as what we call in neuroscience as prediction machines. So all of our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviours are typically uh, based on what our brain and moment by moment guesses is about what, what is going to happen next. So the, the brain's always, you know, so your, your emotions are often... Um, cognitively created based on the context, the situation, and what the brain thinks is going to happen next. And when everything becomes unpredictable and uncertain, suddenly the brain doesn't know what's coming next. We consciously don't know, and the brain does not know what's coming next. So, you know, we start to behave in some ways that sort of almost start to fill the gap, tell tell the stories to make ourselves feel more emotionally comfortable. So we worry or we ask for information or we seek reassurance and we can become very hypervigilant. And certainly people back in, if you think back to March and April, people will be very familiar with everyone was kind of glued to the news feed mm-hmm. because we were all desperately seeking for information and we were looking for reassurance to fill that gap. I suspect we've kind of settled into the uncertainty a little more um now you know it's interesting to kind of reflect now in June looking back two or three months ago um but for many people in many parts of the world there's still a a lot of unknown 
Yeah. Well, Sarah, as you begin to like talk about this tolerance for uncertainty, the first thing that came to my mind being, I guess, really into myself as I thought, I bet I have a really high tolerance for uncertainty. But then as you started describing all the things that make us uncertain, I thought, no, actually, I really don't like this at all. I don't like every, every one of those anxieties that you bring up, I think, you know, so my, my question kind of coming into this is, mm. um, you know, look, looking at it from, I guess, probably a good way to see this side by side to be like my wife and I, you know, if, mm. if something is coming up and, and we're uncertain, I'm kind of like, well, let's just go, let's just do it. And then as soon as mm. we make that decision to go and do, then I start panicking. <laughs> and I have no more tolerance, uncertainty. And for mm. her, now we're in it. We're on the ride. We're okay. <laughs> um, mm. And she's cool as a cucumber. Mm. And and so kind of my question is, what does tolerance to uncertainty look like? What would be an example? Because as I was going through it at the beginning, I felt like I knew what that looked like because I felt it looked like me. But then as you talked through it, I thought, no, that's not what I look like. I I have, I think, mm. a very low threshold for for mm. uncertainty. It just comes mm. at a different time. It maybe comes closer to the event. Um, mm. So, so what would that look like? Yeah, and it's and it's interesting because it's the kind of thing you know a lot of us you know think oh, I'd be fine, I'd be I'd be cool if I didn't know what was happening next. But it's very rare in which we don't know what is happening. And even if um, you know plans have changed externally to us, you know we we still like to think. That we've we've put plans in place ourselves, so we've we've kind of almost created our own little coping mechanism there. Um, if we look at people who don't cope with uncertainty, and especially people who are much more vulnerable in this space, they're, they're often people who have who have struggled perhaps in the past with mental health issues. Not necessarily like diagnosed depression or anxiety, but people who do have a propensity to worry or who have a propensity to not be able to make decisions, um, don't cope well if there's some little unforeseen event that spoils their plans for the day, not being able to cope with, you know, you don't have all of the information in front of you, so you kind of become paralysed um, with indecision, or you procrastinate. So all of those are perhaps, I suppose, lower key ways of responding when we're not tolerant. People who are exceptionally tolerant, and I you know, to, to, to use a similar comparison, if I compare myself and my husband, and he is um, one of these people who is incredibly emotionally and mentally resilient. Um, I'm probably less so, but we've both got a reasonable high tolerance for risk um, and uncertainty. And I certainly see that in, in, in my business. I don't necessarily make long, long-term plans. I'm quite happy with reacting, responding as things come my way. And I suppose that's what you do when you have a consultancy. Um he and people who are, my husband and people who are exceptionally tolerant of uncertainty typically have what we would see and what we would describe as good cognitive control and good mm. emotional control. And these are the kinds of people who are easily able to kind of compartmentalise their thoughts. They've got very, very good attention. They can choose what to pay attention to and what to ignore. Um, they are not what we would describe as warriors. They are the kind of people who are able to go, right, I'm going to set aside that idea for now and pay attention to what I need to focus on in the moment. So they're very good at being able to compartmentalise, which is, is, is an absolute, it's a, it's a fundamental skill, particularly in these times, to be able to do. People who aren't able to, um, who don't have that same degree of emotional 
control over their attention. I'm going to pay attention to, um, you know, getting the, you know, writing the report and not worrying about when the kids are going back to school. People who are less able to to shift their attention like that are far more likely to be anxious. And we see this in studies that have been done of people who suffer from, for example, anxiety, because anxiety is is really a stress-based condition and it's about you know, unregulated fear in a way. We see people who who do not have good cognitive control over their attention are far more likely to get carried away with worrying about things that they can't do anything about. Um, so, so if we have high tolerance for uncertainty, we have high good cognitive control. And we also, alongside that comes good emotional control. So these people are typically very skilled at emotional regulation. People might say, oh, well, you, don't, you can't always put your emotions aside, but there does come times in life when you do have to set aside a particular concern that may be causing you emotional discomfort, keep your responses in check and focus on the task at hand. Now, some people almost seem to have that as a bit of an, a natural ability or perhaps they've learned that through their childhood or they're just someone with reasonable, um, you know, that's just kind of, natural to who they are the good news is we can learn those skills they're not always going to come easy but <laughs> what a psychologist would do if you were trying to train yourself up in that would be well, let's practice feeling uncertain and let's act as if we are tolerant well right now we don't have a lot of choice it's a it's a really good time to start role-playing resilience and start practicing healthy coping behaviors um, start, you know, reflecting on how we worry. Um, start practicing on choosing what we pay attention to, because as I say, we're suddenly all in this global situation where we're all facing uncertainty. So now, as good a time as any to, you know, start rolling these rolling these kind of skills out, or these actions that we can take to teach ourselves these these abilities. Yeah, I'm I sort of thinking that if, if we aren't practicing it by now, we're we're kind of in trouble. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, well, there, there will be a lot of people who who are, and, um, yeah. you know, those of us who have this little bit of kind of information and knowledge are incredibly fortunate. And also, if, you know, you're in the situation when you're able to listen to a podcast right. like this and learn, um, I, I think it's, it's important to realise it's contextual. Some people are just completely... Um, have had have had the most terrible time in amongst all of this, but those of us who have perhaps got a few more options, if we're privileged enough to be in that situation, there are some things that we can we can do, um, and that's you know that's going to be a good thing because it puts us in a position to you know help ourselves, which makes us more available to help other people who perhaps may not be as you know um, easily able to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've underlined, I, I kind of take notes as we go along and, mm. and um, <laughs> act as if you were tolerant. I, I, yeah. I quoted that, I underlined it. Um, and I'm not really necessarily sure what that looks like entirely, but it, it reminds me of like, you know, when my kids were little and they wouldn't want to eat something. I'm like, well, pretend you did like it. Mm. Or, or why don't you pretend it's something else? And like with, with my boys, I could, um, and, and you said you are raising two surfer dudes. So you could probably, relate to them. <laughs> yeah. you know, if they didn't like the spaghetti, I could have them imagine it was worms, you know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and then they dig right into it. And it, yeah. it's interesting because, um, you know, as, as you said that I was thinking about, you know, children and how often 
and I don't know if this is true, that they really are emotionally resilient or we just perceive them to be that way. But so much of what they do is to spend time role playing and playing things mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. Is is that similar to what you're suggesting might be a way for us? Is there is there a, an adult way to do make believe that that can help yeah. us? Um, <laughs> Abs you know, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's important to realize that we're not kind of at mercy of our emotions. Our emotions are created moment by moment. How we feel and how we choose to respond um, are within our control. And one of the best ways to do that is this, this idea of act as if um, is a very kind of well-established phenomenon within, within therapy, within cognitive behavioral therapy, um, you know, Obviously, it's not about pretending you are happy when you are not. But if you act as if you are someone who is tolerant in the face of uncertainty, I mean, I know, like at the beginning of all of this this deal, I was sitting around eating a lot of chocolate Easter rabbits because it was Easter time. There was there was no toilet paper or you know pasta or flour in the shops, but there was a lot of chocolate Easter bunnies here in Australia. These lint chocolate bunnies, they were like that was all you could buy. So I was probably eating, smashing back about one of them a day. Um, then I was like kind of lounging around eating chocolate and drinking far too much wine. And then I was like, I'm not this, you know, I, I really need to start acting as if I'm a person who is going to, you know, I made a conscious decision. I want to get through this pandemic, however long it's going to last and make it a, as good an experience for my family as it possibly can be. I don't want to look back on this and think that it, it you know, knocked me down. I want to thrive if I can. I don't want to just survive. And so I made the conscious decision. I was going to act as if I was the kind of person who was going to behave um, and, and, and make something of this experience. Obviously, here in Australia and living where I do with the resources I have at hand, it's been a lot easier than it has been for a lot of people. So I just started acting as if I was that person. This idea of role play is... Um, you know, at, at, at someone who's perhaps feeling a bit blue, get up, make your bed, make yourself a coffee, you know, sit down at your desk and start working, act as if. Once you sort of start behaving in that way, the rest of your body and brain and mind and emotions kind of start following along behind. Hmm. Um, and th that is one of the, um, I suppose, um, one one aspect of kind of mind, brain and behavior that people don't often realize is that one way to tap into your your mind and your emotions is through your body. So one of the, the suggestions I have is that you schedule time every day for exercise, move your body and not for the reason that you might expect. Obviously being exercising and being fit and healthy is incredibly important right now at any point um, in time, getting out of your mind and into your body. But when we move our body, we're kind of reminding our mind that we retain agency. We still have choice. Our brains evolved so we can move our bodies through the world. So if we move our bodies through the world, that's kind of another way into reminding our brains, hey, you're not helpless in the face of uncertainty. You can face down this fear. You can still make decisions, even if they're just small decisions about, you know, moving your arms and legs or walking along the street. You can still act independently. You still have choices. This idea of agency is incredibly important. Hmm. So, you know, that's almost a acting as if you retain agency, acting as if you have choices in the world. You still do, even if it is something as simple as going for a walk. Hmm. You know, it's well. interesting because as you're bringing that up, it reminds me of a story someone told me years ago where she had 
gone to some form of therapy uh, where they it was it was a group therapy and they they did a dance. And uh, she said that as soon as she kind of let go, she just started crying. And I decided I never want to go to that therapy. <laughs> but <laughs> um, it, it is interesting thinking about listening to our bodies. And then it sounds like you're also talking about speaking back to our bodies as well, that I, I may mm-hmm. not be able to tell my brain, don't feel sad, but I might be able to tell my feet to move. Is, is that mm. a good representation? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think sometimes trying to control our thoughts with our thoughts is, is very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, most people have a lot of, um, you know, let's control our attention, control our thoughts using the power of our own mind. It's incredibly difficult. That's why we have mind-body practices. That's why one of the best ways to perhaps calm yourself down is not to tell yourself to calm down or tell someone else to calm down, is to perhaps use your body by perhaps practicing slow breathing with a long exhale. Using your body to calm your mind um, is, is often a far easier, a more successful way than trying to use your mind to calm your mind. So again, this, so that's what I, get, I suppose where role play comes into that, acting as if using your body to act out a part um, in, in, in these times is, is quite useful. It might just sound so silly and so small, but it's one of the many things that we can do to kind of give ourselves a sense of control, give ourselves a sense, kind of remind ourselves that we retain choice, we retain agency, because often what people tend to do in the face of the unknown, in the face of fear, is they become, become we're completely helpless. Um, we become completely undecided. In, in, in um, it's almost as if we hand over all of the choices to everyone else. Um, we become completely emotionally wrung out. Um, and this, this kind of concept of, of learned helplessness becomes part of all of this. So you've got to remind yourself that you're not. And if it's just something simple, like going for a walk, that's just one little step along that way. It seems like there were two steps, you know, that I think play really well into this. I think one of them was to, you know, control the things that you can. And the other Mm -hmm. was, this is out of order, but to give yourself rewards, basically. Yeah. To reward yourself. And then maybe that walk is that reward, you know, that I may not have have the power to reward myself for certain things in certain ways. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, in the the article, I suppose, perhaps good time to start talking about some of the actions that you can take Mm -hmm. to train yourself to be more tolerant to uncertainty and and I suppose I like a lot of these ideas because they're reasonably well founded in in neuroscience and therapy and psychology and also they don't involve just telling yourself to become more tolerant just (laughs) we don't know what's out there you're just going to have to cope using your mind and using you know that kind of language to yourself doesn't necessarily help so um i I've already talked about one of these these ideas, which is this idea of moving your body, scheduling daily exercise, and not just just for for health reasons, but for agency. But some, there's some other things we can do. Um, so what you mentioned was control what you can, and this I suppose is in as much of a way as a realization that, you know, we can't control what is happening in this unpredictable, chaotic external world right now. So what we can do is create predictability and order almost kind of shrink the world down. And I've, I've often thought about this. I have this kind of visual in my mind recently of in terms of what I decided to do for me and my family, we were going to just shrink the world down into our little bubble and control what we could. We were going to create predictability and order. I wanted my children 
not to be experiencing chaos and emotional turmoil. So the little things that I could do to get them organised with homeschool, you know, I got up every morning and made my bed, you know, there was various tasks we all had to do. And if we can kind of create some predictability, we're not, I wasn't lying around the sofa eating chocolate and drinking wine all day, um, which I kind of felt like I did that for a few days, you know, because you kind of need to get that out of your system. But um, if there's, you don't have control over the external world out there, you have to behave in a way in which, you know, you, you can, you know, gain some control over something because helplessness is a vicious cycle. Um, and then once we start to feel helpless, we fail to seek out any opportunities for action. Now, one way to control what you can is to set a daily schedule. And this is what we would tell someone who was perhaps suffering from you know, mild anxiety or depression anyway. Daily routines are a secret weapon against worry. And it's not just if you've got homeschool kids, it's, it's, it's a prescription for um, kind of giving you structure. It gives an automatic structure amidst the chaos and it anchors your mind to the present moment. It can anchor your mind to the current 10 minutes you're in, the half an hour you're in. Almost the more detailed your schedule, the more it allows you just to sort of shrink the world down and focus and on what is in front of you. And there were a lot of memes and things going around a couple of months ago, particularly online, of various people's schedules. And they had the kind of the day almost broken up into half-hour slots. It's a very well-established prescription for reducing anxiety. And what that does is point three, it enables us to fall back. We can kind of almost fall back on these systems, these processes, these timetables we have. And there's a bit of a saying that, um, in, the, in the airline industry, in a crisis, a pilot is taught not to rise to the challenge, but to fall back on systems and processes. Mm. So a schedule, you know, a, a control what you can, detailed daily schedule means you can just, you can fall back on that. So when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling helpless, when you're feeling emotionally out of control, you can just default to that. The decisions are made. You're not expending any extra energy than what you need to. And it kind of almost just gives you this like framework in which to almost survive within. Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking as you mentioned that. Uh, And I think the pilot example is great. We we remember Scully landing in the Potomac there, Hudson River or whatnot. But uh, yeah, and and just being a structured individual myself by nature, Mm. I recognize that having that structure takes so much thought process out of my mind because you just sort of trust the system, you trust that schedule, and therefore you can sort of plod on even when you're not feeling. And it's not, gee, do I do this or do I do this? Do I do this or do that? You know, and Mm. and it does. So Mm. that's that's good insight. Mm. And I think, um, you know, we can experience a great degree of cognitive fatigue and emotional fatigue from Mm -hmm. making decisions. You know, yeah. using using willpower, trying to even figure out what to eat. I mean, you know, just the simplest and coming up with a meal plan for the week. So you're not then getting to Tuesday and going, oh, I haven't got anything for dinner. And then in some parts of the world, freaking out because you've got to go out to the grocery store. Um, you know, having having the systems and processes in place just removes all of that extra emotional energy um, that you're going to have to expend, that you can focus on what, what you need to be focusing on. Um, I said the next um, kind of point in all of this, and as I said, I had this visual, and I'm quite, I 
I, I can't imagine a lot of things quite visually in my mind, this idea of I decided I was just going to like shrink the world down into this kind of bubble around our family. My husband, who I has, is, a, is a very busy partner in a financial services firm, probably hasn't been home for dinner maybe once or twice a month in the last 12 years. We've had, we've had family dinners every night for the last three months. It's been amazing. I've I've had a lot of fortune come out of this this deal for me. But part of that was just this idea of just shrinking everything down. Um, and all because so many of our goals and everything are kind of in the future and they're all now meaningless, they've evaporated. And it's very easy then to lose a sense of kind of purpose, especially if you're very goal-directed, if you're very ambitious, you're used to kind of moving towards something. And I think it's almost now is the time to start focusing on not so much on the big picture but on the details um, and that gives us the opportunity to break a big perhaps far off goal down into lots of little tasks we can just focus on the like little tiny wee steps and that's what kind of keeps us motivated um, mm. feeling on purpose and it's a really really important key contributor to, to feeling and experiencing positive emotions yeah it's those those little um successes you know yeah, just to build yeah. those little successes yeah in. instead yeah. of that you know big you know kind of presentation that you were going to give on stage in front of five thousand people in november or that trip right. to antarctica <laughs> you were doing in november or you know i know people that have had books that were coming that were going to be published and they're meant to be going on tour around the country you know through july and august all of these kind of goals have evaporated so and, and that's incredibly disappointing there's a lot of grief Many of us have had to go through an experience and, and let go of the plans that we had. Um, you've got to find little small goals, find the details to focus on instead. It's just shrinking everything right down into something more manageable. It's very interesting because I and I, I'd be curious, Leonard, if you had similar feelings when when we both went on furlough and you know, and all of a sudden we weren't employed anymore. I think you know it, it wasn't that my income had really changed significantly because. Fortunately, here in the U.S., we have a pretty robust unemployment situation at the moment. Um, mm. It wasn't that, I mean, in so many ways, life hadn't changed. But mm. where I felt like I began to deal with maybe even a little of depressed thoughts and things like that, all I think centered around that element of purpose, that I knew mm. my purpose when I was working every day. I knew what to measure myself by. And... It sounds like, in, in a lot of ways, what, what I'm taking away from this is that building a schedule and making that your purpose <laughs> may help with that transition from saying, am I really contributing anything? Am I really doing what I'm supposed to do with my life at this point? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Steve, to kind of answer, you, you're somewhat asking about how that affected me. And I, I think you're right. That's what, you know, the first thing we did is the, the wife and I sat down, went through the honeydew list and said, okay, what can we get accomplished reasonably while I'm mm. off, you know? And uh, for me, it's been painting the interior of my home, you know? And uh, so it, it really, I can certainly see how that has been um, a bit of a stabilizer during the time. So yeah, that's good. And so, Sarah, there's mm. some other steps you've got here as well. So, uh, yeah, looking at this, uh, rewarding yourself regularly. Steve yeah, mentioned that like earlier. Yeah, like you, oh, you know, perhaps every, yeah. perhaps every time you finished painting a wall, you felt, you know, you should give yourself a pat on the back. 
<laughs> I think I'm always a huge fan, and you'd know from from the Neuroscience Academy that I um, we talk about having a refire project. I'm not mm. a big fan of long term goals, and well, we've all kind of learned that. I've always found them long, linear. They, they, they they're so far away. There's no kind of joy getting there. Um, for me, it's about having a project with lots of little moving pieces and parts. And again, the visual I always have in my mind is the big thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, um, finding joy and putting each little piece in that puzzle. If you do jigsaws, and I'm now about to begin thousand-piece um, puzzle jigsaw number five of lockdown. Um, I've already I saw, I've had 4,000 4, happy little moments in the last couple of months, and I'm about to schedule in a thousand more. And oh it sounds sounds super cheesy. Actually, we had this. We have, I know there's been a jigsaw puzzle boom, and I, and um, yeah. our prime minister here in Australia mentioned his wife going out to buy his children jigsaw puzzles um, when we first went into lockdown. And I think like the country went mad buying jigsaws. You couldn't get your hands on any. No, so I joined no a, a Facebook, yeah, Facebook <laughs> jigsaw swap. But I, I, I do, and it sounds so silly. But I've always been a fan of having a project visualized as a jigsaw because there's so many little pieces that you can work towards. You're not just you're not just trying to complete the whole thing. The joy comes from each little piece that you click into place and you kind of give yourself a little mini high five. And, and what's really important about and I and I have to say my morning routine all through lockdown it's kind of slipped slightly now because the boys have. I'm a little bit disappointed they went back to school because um, I was quite enjoying not having to do that pre-morning hustle of getting them into their school uniforms and making lunches and out the door. But I would sit down every morning with a cup of coffee, work in the, in the morning sun, work on my jigsaw and listen to a, um, a podcast from the ABC here, a science podcast. And that was my finding joy in the small things and finding ways to give myself lots of little mini rewards is what happens when we become very intolerant to uncertainty. We, in the face of the fear, you know, and, and, and when we've got fear of the unknown, we experience anxiety and we start worrying, all of these negative effects, we become less responsive to any reward. We become less likely to experience enjoyment. We lose motivation. We feel, what's, what's the point? And one way to kind of hack that back in is to find ways to give yourself lots of little rewards and not just the feeling of putting the piece in, but the anticipation. Every morning, I and it starts. It sounds a little cheesy, but honestly, I would quite look, look forward to my kind of 20 minutes in the sun with my coffee and my jigsaw. I started anticipating that. And that's what we understand about what the brain does when it's, you know, the, the, we, people might be familiar with concepts around dopamine as the neuromodulator um, that's released when something feels pleasurable. And it's not just at the moment of that pleasure, it's an anticipation, it's kind of the wanting. And if we have um, that embedded in our routine, um, when, when we're not forgetting how to experience pleasure. Um, it doesn't have to be a jigsaw, and I've kind of banged on about that, but I think if you have a project that you can work on, again, you've brought the, the goalposts in much closer um, and, and you know, you've got a framework to work within. Well, and two, jigsaw puzzle or paint in the wall, what that mm. really does, it, it, I think maybe that ties back to movement possibly too, mm. because then you're you're not just focused on, in your mind on the negativity of the mm. events that are going on, but mm. it's that small distraction of 
does this puzzle fit or am I dripping mm. paint on the floor or whatever circumstance, you know? Yeah. And so there's, there's such a mental uh, reward for lack of better words in doing that as well, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's kind of wallowing in the tiny little pleasures. I said, you know, again, yeah. we've, we, we've got to move, we've, we've, we can't be too big picture. We've got to be details and say, what are the little kind what are those little moments that you can anticipate and look forward to and then kind of just wallow around in and enjoy? Um, because that again is reminding your body and you're reminding your brain to not be helpless, to not be anxious, not just telling yourself, don't be this way, but acting as if you are not that way. <clears throat> and I'm curious, is it is, is it more ideal to come up with a big reward that you do at the end of the day? Or, or is it really like you're talking about to try and find, is it more advantageous to try and find multiple small things rather than a few really big things? Um, look, I think it probably depends what those big and what those little things are. Um, I personally always began my day this way because then I would feel engaged and I'd, I'd start my day off with positivity and that would kind of flow through to the rest of the tasks that I had to do that day um, including my you know my daily walks my dog to remind myself I could still move and get out and about um, I think if I almost delayed that to the end of the day I'd feel like I was slogging through um, so I personally but it's not necessarily for everyone would have have them embedded at different points in the day so you're kind of doing a lot of smaller steps um, rather than sort of delaying everything until 8 p.m at night might be a long way away when it's 8 a.m in the morning until you've got some degree of pleasure I think I would rather personally start off with that you can have multiple you know points along the way in which you you feel and seek these rewards not just one big big you know dob of it at the end well, it sounds like even what you're describing is your these these rewards are are there to help set the right tone and the right mood for you. Yes, and absolutely. Yep, absolutely. So you use them strategically in whatever mm -hmm. way you need to if to create that. If it's the the joy that comes from anticipating something big, or if it's I just had a great time doing something, or I felt a little reward in getting that puzzle piece mm. in. Which, mm. by the way, puzzles are one of those things that I, it teaches us that one person's reward is another person's personal hell. I think that would be I know as soon as you, as soon as you said about the puzzle, Sarah, I, I did see a picture. I, I don't know if it's true or not, you know, how things are on the internet, but supposedly Heinz ketchup has a puzzle and it's not the label of the ketchup bottle. It is literally just a ketchup red puzzle. <laughs> period oh God, the funny. whole thing so uh, uh, yeah. I, I wish I could find it and send it to you <laughs> I know I would love that and, and I and I always listen, and I listen to podcasts while I'm doing that so you know I'm kind of getting my my kind of cognitive enhancement and, and yeah, my learning and my and and I and I listened to a 10-minute podcast from the ABC here um, in Australia called Corona Cast which was um, Norman Swan who's at one of our health journalists here it's kind of a 10-minute, very thoughtful summary of the latest um, scientific research and updates on, on, on mm. the coronavirus. So it wasn't hysterical. It wasn't too long. It wasn't too short. Yeah. It was just gave me, my, gave me my update, filled in enough of the information gap that yeah. I, I, I felt informed. 
I felt cool, calm and, and, and ready to kind of face face the day, um, whether that be helping the kids out with homeschool or braving so the supermarket or whatever, whatever it was for that day. So you don't have the news on 24 hours as well? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, don't have, I don't even have news apps on my phone. I've taken, I took everything uh, off a very, very long time ago. Um, and I also um, have my um, internet um, app, like Safari or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. um, hidden in my phone. So I can't just pick my phone up and ah. look something up. Um, although then one of my sons told me the other day, you, you can swipe left and you can see it straight away. And I was like, oh, no, don't tell me that. But I used to have it hidden <laughs> about six screens over in a folder and a folder so that I would then have a pattern interrupt. If I thought, oh, I might just look something up on the internet. Um, I would have a pattern interrupt before. I, I would almost have an, enough of a gap to say, now, do I actually really need to be looking this up? And I, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't. So it, it was just another way of... Um, stopping the mindless scrolling and the seeking of information, which wasn't going to wow. answer any questions that's, for that's me. Um, I just yeah. use my, my phone as a phone and as a radio for, for listening to podcasts, basically. Excellent. Well, hopefully you'll listen to ours. That's kind of the best one out there right now. Oh, absolutely. I don't know whether I'll listen to myself yap away, but I'm going to listen to sure you have some more, some, some, some kind of different guests than, than me. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, what? you know, you're talking about these rewards and things, and I, it's not in the article, but it was in your TED talk that I, I found really interesting. And, and I feel like it fits very well. And you were talking about the power of naps mm. um, and, and bringing those in. And, and um, I feel like this is really could be very beneficial for a lot of people because it's one of those things that doesn't cost any money. We don't normally have to work at it. Look at a person's mm. resources to determine whether or not they can they can have a nap. But how do you feel like that might kind of play into doing the things we need to do to take care of ourselves and put us in a situation where we can be a little more uh, change tolerant? Mm. Well, I am a very, very big fan of the afternoon nap. As you say, I've done a TED TED talk. I was invited to do a TED talk and I I thought I might do it on afternoon naps because they're my favorite thing. Um, Mm -hmm. um, And for me, I was one of those people um, all the way through kind of, you know, not so much at high school, but university. And then when I was working in the research lab, get to 2.30 in the afternoon and I could not stay awake. Some people, that is just their natural, you know, kind of circadian rhythm. And I'm definitely one of those people gets the mid-afternoon and I'd be fighting, fighting off falling asleep for an hour or so. And then I'd kind of come out the other side, maybe at about 4.30. And those couple of hours in the middle of the afternoon were torture to get through, especially if I was in a lecture theatre or something. Um, luckily, I now work for myself and I have my own business, so I get to 2.30 in the afternoon, and I decided I would sort of start listening to that urge to sleep, and I didn't want to just sort of fall asleep for two hours, because when I had children, and you know, it's a bit of a waste of a day, but um, I sort of started looking into the research around strategic napping, and how we can use the nap to um almost dampen down that awful sleepy feeling that you get um, and what are some of the other um, out, you know, positive outcomes. And for me, I've kind of got it down to a real fine art where I set my alarm for about 20, if I feel that urge, 
set my alarm on my iPhone. There's no magic trick. I just use my iPhone. Set an alarm for 23 minutes because I know if I feel like falling asleep and I lie down somewhere comfortable, warm and safe, I'll be asleep within a minute. Um, the, the key and the trick is to not sleep too long. Lots of people say to me, when I have an afternoon nap, I wake up and I feel terrible. And I'm like, well, I bet you didn't nap for 20 minutes. You probably napped for two hours. And there is a big difference between napping for two hours and falling into deep sleep um, and then getting woken up from that and feeling terrible. Um, understandably, when you're woken from a deep sleep, you will. And then it go on to disrupt your night's sleep as well. Whereas if you have just a very, very short nap, um, you kind of fall within the first sort of couple of stages of sleep and then you wake yourself up. You're not waking yourself up from deep sleep, but you're getting a lot of the positive benefits that you um, might, you know, you can get just as many benefits from 20 minutes as you can get from two hours. Um, and that it, it improves your emotional regulation. I always say it gave me like a second day. Um, you're not sleeping so long that you disrupt your night's sleep. And everyone I've spoken to um, over the years who was also like me, a strategic afternoon napper, They've struggled with that sleepy time. They've got it down to 20 minutes. They do it with a, with a great deal of strategy and structure. And I always say to them, so do you sleep well at night? And they're like, oh, my God, I'm the best sleeper. And I'm like that. I love going to sleep. And I think it also, it therefore teaches you very strong, positive associations with sleep. Um, you know, if you feel sleepy, you lie down, you go to sleep, and you just gain so much pleasure and joy. It's almost like wallowing in the the, the reward and the pleasure that comes from that experience. Um, most strategic nappers who do that are not the kind of people that fall asleep or lie, lie in bed at night worrying or suffer from insomnia. I'm not yeah. sure what the cause and effect is there, but there's definitely the development of a strong positive association with sleep. Um, it's also been shown to improve memory. Um, memory and learning because cons sleep consolidates memory and um, and there's also various you know these stories I don't know how much truth there is in them about um, it, it, it does allow you to tap into kind of creative insights and problem solving and you hear stories about the artist Salvador Dali would nap and then wake up and paint what he saw or um, um, Thomas Edison would nap holding keys and when he dropped them or coins when he dropped them he'd wake up and he'd writes down what he'd come up with in his mind so that's how I see and use napping it's not I'm going to lie down this afternoon and sleep for three hours it's a very short strategic um kind of I don't like to use the word hack because it sounds like a shortcut um, and for me it is really useful for reducing my stress I'm not like many many people people are often shocked when they hear this I don't have a mindfulness meditation practice um, again, I say I personally find it very hard to control my thoughts using the power of my mind. Um, I do use deep breathing um, as a way of reducing my stress levels, but I don't have a mindfulness practice. I have a nap. <laughs> mm. I do deep breathing and, I, and I'll have a nap. And for me, that has just as many positive knock-on benefits for, for stress reduction um, the other things I spoke about, as as many people claim that they have, get from mindfulness practice. Well, I am a big nap person as well, and I find mm. that when I take a nap, it reduces stress in other people. <laughs> <laughs> do you? How long? How long do you usually nap for? Uh, somewhere between fifteen to eighteen minutes. Fifteen to eighteen minutes. Yeah. And do you sleep well, well at I, night? Like well, like you, yeah. I set I set my I set my phone uh, for myself. What I generally do is I turn on Pandora for fifteen minutes. Yeah. And so it auto goes off at fifteen, and then I have the alarm set for about eighteen, 
And yeah. uh, that way it blocks out noise from the rest of the house mm -hmm. and I can go to sleep and the noise is done before the alarm goes off so I can hear yeah. the alarm. Yeah. And so, do you wait? And, and, and absolutely. And yeah, how did you kind of develop that, that sort of technique? Uh, well, I, I actually credit it for the fact that I had worked the overnight shift and I had to sleep, uh, yeah. but I've continued to do it when I can. Like you, uh, like you said, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> normally I'm not in an environment where I can lay down and do that, but since yeah. we've been furloughed, uh, yeah. I've been enjoying it so much. Yeah. And, do, uh, and but, how's your night sleep? Oh, it's, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's rare that I have difficulty yeah. falling asleep at night. Yeah. It yeah. really is. And I yeah. think it um, is a, it forms that really strong positive association. So you're another. You're another. I can add you to my list. N equals. Add you to my N equals list. Another one yeah. there. And and I'm and I have not found anyone who's a strategic napper like yourself who who struggles for sleep at night. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not. Yeah. That's just my little personal study that I've been doing. Yeah. Um, well, but Dan it is, it is interesting. Yeah, Dan, Dan Pink even addresses it in his new book, When, and I know he did a little video uh, newsletter that mentioned naps and walk through, and he, he recommends even having a cup of coffee prior to napping. Oh, before you nap, takes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it takes about 15 minutes for the caffeine to kick in, and yeah, so that way when coffee, you wake yeah. up, you, you get the double hit. Yeah, because yeah, the biochemical exactly. kind of changes yeah. that take place in terms of the, dis the transmitters yeah. get displaced by napping are the same functions the same way as caffeine so yeah. you can get a bit of a double hit um, yeah, and but I, I wouldn't I do it if it was too late and like I, I would personally I don't drink coffee after about two in the afternoon so if I was to have yeah. a 3 30 or 4 p.m nap I probably mm -hmm. wouldn't add the coffee yeah my, and I'm not much of a coffee in. drinker yeah mm -hmm. I'm not much of a coffee drinker and so when that alarm goes I'm I'm up and alert and yeah. no no stimulus needed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's much it's much easier than fighting those through those couple of hours. I I find, um, yeah, obviously if you're you know a school teacher, <laughs> it's not going to work, or a nurse, or you know. This, but I, I I have a friend who um, is now retired, but she was a vet, a veterinary surgeon, and she used to schedule in her daily, um, you know, her, her schedule. Um, you know, there was there was twenty minutes blocked out. I'm not going to see a client and a pet at this point in time. I, this is when I have my nap in my office. So I know mm. some people are very very um, kind of rigid around that, which is great. Good stuff. And I just have nap envy now, listening to both of you. <laughs> well, some people ask me how how can I do it if I lie down, I wouldn't yeah. fall asleep, and again, yeah. that's the thing. I don't do it if I don't want one or, or feel like I need one. But yeah. I could have like a nine-hour sleep at night and wake and get to two the next day. And then, especially if I've, say, I've been out, I've had a long walk, I've had some lunch, I've come home, mm -hmm. I'll often have it then. Um, and and, and it, it's almost like I can't, I don't see the point of fighting it off. Um, mm -hmm. I'll indulge that. But if I don't feel like I need it or want it, I'm not going to do it. I don't do it. I don't force myself. And it seems like for me, if I, I, can, I can be in that situation, I'm so ready to go to sleep. But it's just the act of lying down triggers something. <laughs> and then and then it takes 20 minutes to get to sleep. And then once I get to sleep, that's when the alarm goes off. And I, I feel very unsatisfied by that. Um, <laughs> it sounds like um, in listening to what both of you have said, that the key really is is having some sort of consistency to it, something that yes. tells your brain yeah. now is the time. Now you have permission to fall asleep because I think many yeah. of us, 
we've spent most of our, our adult lives tired <laughs> and fighting sleep. So mm -hmm. maybe, maybe we've conditioned mm -hmm. ourselves to where when we feel those needs to sleep or that need to sleep, that that's when our, our fighting strategies come in and, and we start mm -hmm. pushing back and, and, and really mm -hmm. don't take very good care of ourselves because of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And no one feels guilty if they're told to develop a mindfulness or meditation practice, which probably will take the same amount of time really all up. Um, and, I, and I think that you've kind of hit the nail on the head there is that, that almost feeling like, and I see this with my husband because he's not the best sleeper. He'll be in bed at night and he'll be half falling asleep. Then he'll keep waking himself up to carry on reading his book. It's almost as if he doesn't, he thinks that there's something wrong with what, and I'm like, you're in bed, mate. It's nighttime. You're allowed to go to sleep. It's okay. Why don't you just like enjoy yourself? And he's like, oh, no, no, I think I'll just read for a bit longer. And I'm like, oh, God, this is a bit very stressful to be in your head right now. Um, and he's not a very high-stressed person, but that's how it plays out in him, um, is that almost feeling guilty about sleeping. It's, um, whereas I just think it's it's lovely. It's, you don't have to learn how to do it either. You just let yourself go. It just happens and it doesn't cost mm. anything. I think that still goes no. down to that, that, that main point that uh, it's something anyone can do. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that's what I, 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 as I was getting prepared to spend some time with you, that was one of the things that I thought, if I could get this incorporated in my life, I wonder what kind of a difference it might make. Mm. Um, and, and so that, that's going to be my goal is to see if, if there's a way to incorporate that mm. because the few times when you're not tired, it's amazing how sharp you can feel <laughs> at mm. those moments. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that uh, Leonard has been a napper for some time. He, I, we used to always joke him if I joke to him about if I was sending him a, a, a instant message or something, he didn't respond right away. I'd be like, "You taking your nap?" Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, Sarah, I so much appreciate you taking your time today and talking about this. I'm, I'm going to put a link to this article in the show notes so folks can see the entirety of it there and learn from it. Uh, it's, it's really good stuff. And uh, appreciate the work that you do and how you make brain science simple for those of us that haven't gone to Oxford and gotten that degree. <laughs> well, I think it's 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 relevant to the work that's so you know, the work that we do in the situation we're in now. So, um, absolutely, yeah. One of my life's great pleasures is to be able to, you know, take take as I say, take it out of the lab and make it useful. It's yeah. Still wake up every yeah. day feeling so grateful. That's what I get to do. All right. And, and you do it and do it well. So thank you for that. So, well, with that, uh, Steve, any last thoughts from you before we wrap up our podcast for the day here? Well, I have just a, a couple of quotable quotes and maybe I'm going to quote you wrong. You can listen to the recording and find out, but <laughs> things I think that we can, we can take away from this act as if, you know, which I found to be very powerful. You know, it's time for us adults to do, to do a little role play, um, do a little make-believe and take a nap. You know, it's it's time for us to regain those those things that helped us so much when when we were developing. And I'm I'm not sure why we ever thought we didn't need those anymore. Another <laughs> thing I really liked was um, out of your mind and into your body. I've, mm -hmm. I've often been accused of being out of my mind, and I think really the key is maybe we need to embrace that. From you know what I took from you today is it's okay to be out of your mind. Um, the way back in is through your body. Mm -hmm. Start moving, figure out how to listen to your body, 
um, and the clues that it's uh, giving to find that balance, uh, to schedule a daily routine um, as a weapon against anxiety, which is interesting, even just from the perspective of, you know, the experiences I've had with um, uh, children with autism and, and discovered that anxiety seemed to always be their constant companion, but mm-hmm. schedule and routine was something mm-hmm. that comfort. For sure, and yeah, yeah. Whether you suffer with autism or you're blessed with autism, however you want to look at that, um, th- that's how our how everyone's mind ap- appears to work the same, is that if, if we have too much anxiety, maybe we don't have enough routine. Um, mm-hmm. And then I love don't rise to the challenge, and that goes right into having a nap. Just mm-hmm. go down and take a nap. <laughs> mm-hmm. That, that fall back on our structure where we can. So I really appreciate it. I got a lot out of this. I've got a lot of notes and, um, and uh, I hope that all of our listeners have, have an opportunity to really think about some of these things they might be able to implement in their lives because we are in a difficult time. There is a lot of uncertainty. Uh, there's so many things happening outside of just COVID-19 uh, that we really need to find ways to look after ourselves and, and, and exercise that self-care. Uh, so that we come out of this capable of, of moving forward. So thank you very much. And that's, that was my long winded. Oh, thank you uh, for having me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fun. Oh. It was good. Good chat. All right. And for our listeners, we just, again, want to encourage you to reach out to us at furloughedmailbox at gmail.com. Share with us any lessons you've learned along the way or anything that you would like to talk about here on the podcast with us. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, with that, we will go ahead and bid you good day. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.